Lovely to see you all. Do you know, it never ceases to amaze me how gracious God is in, as we come together and worship Him, as words come, how it always just seems to tie in so beautifully to the passage that we're going to look at in His Word. It's really humbling. And as Rob says, we are starting an exciting new series in the book of Hebrews. Woohoo! And it's, guess what? It's all about faith. Faith. God has been speaking to us right the way throughout this morning about faith. Faith in the good times, faith in the difficult times. And how we can be full of courageous faith because of one reason our faith, our hope is placed in the only one who is truly faithful. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. Um, Hebrews is a little bit unusual in the New Testament in the fact that it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. There's been many suggestions. Uh, Paul, Timothy, uh, even uh, Paulus or Priscilla. There's been many, many suggestions. But no one really knows. And that might be because it was written at quite a risky time to be a follower of Jesus. We know from Hebrews it was certainly written after the imprisonment of Timothy. So it was after around about 67 AD. And it's pretty likely that it was done, thank you, it was written before the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. So it puts it in a pretty tight uh, date period. But it was a period that was full of persecution. It was a difficult, risky, precarious time to be a follower of Jesus. It was a time when that part of the world, at least, was being shaken, absolutely shaken. And so the writer basically is writing to Jewish believers, the clues in the name there, Hebrews, who would be facing a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure internally and externally to back off in faith, to dial it down, to kind of go with the flow a little more. In fact, many were tempted to reject the gospel altogether, go back to the synagogues. It was easier that way. There was less persecution. Go with the flow. And sadly, fall back into what was a dead religion in the end for an easier life. And so the main emphasis of Hebrews is is an exhortation, really, to those Jewish believers, an encouragement not to dial it down, not to grow dull in faith, not to, to give in to the prevailing culture and the pressures of life. Not to give in to difficult circumstances. Don't get swayed. Don't settle for anything less. Don't go back to what actually once held you captive. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't fall back into the law. Don't fall back into bondage. It's an encouragement instead to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Hold fast to God's words. In the storm, with all the the wind lashing around, with all the pressure, hold fast 
to the real life that only comes through Jesus, to real freedom, because he is better in every way. And that word better is repeated time and time again throughout this letter to the Hebrews. I think some 13 or so times referencing how much better salvation through Jesus is. He compares and contrasts, as we'll see, with the old covenant and how Jesus brings a better covenant because it's rooted in a better hope with better promises, because only Jesus provides a better, perfect sacrifice for sin. And so it's an exhortation, really to us, not to drift, not to shrink back, but actually to press on, to actually grow in maturity, to see, I loved Louise's testimony, I loved just that sense of, I'm in the middle of the storm and yet I'm singing to Jesus because he is my hope. To use difficulties as actually opportunities for growth. You know, to grow in faith and not to ditch faith. That's the encouragement right the way throughout this book. And as we, we're going to spend... Uh, Right through up until the Christmas season and then after into the new year, we're going to be continuing, but really just immersing ourselves in this encouragement to grow in faith. It's also a warning for us not to place our faith in anything other than Jesus, in his word, in his unshakable kingdom, because we have something real and secure to hold on to. And I think, you know, for us, it's, it's kind of obvious to say that we're living in a time when the world has been shaken. We too are facing uncertainties. Each one of us, has already been said, are facing our own storms. And yet, obviously, at, at this time, our nation is being shaken. What's going to happen? There's a division there. And whether that's Brexit policies or, or global foreign policies or global warming or LGBTQ rights or, or financial markets, you know, things that were in one sense seen as quite stable have, have just been turned on their heads. There's an awful lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety around On top of that, life is just plain busy, isn't it? It's just busy. So stress levels have never been higher. Anxiety levels have never been higher. And there can be a tendency for us to just, uh, just, just to settle a bit, just to back off a bit. We're tired. Just, you know what? It's just easy to blend into the prevailing culture. It's easier to go with the flow. That temptation is very real, isn't it? It's just, oh, come on. And it doesn't happen overnight, does it? This, this drift and becoming slightly more dull. You know, Sunday worship starts becoming more habit, duty, ritual, rather than being alive with the power and presence of Jesus. Our devotional times become something to tick off, to feel good about ourselves. We start becoming a bit less salty. Our light starts becoming a bit more hidden. As I said, it rarely happens overnight, but gradually this, this, this uh, internal intimacy gets replaced with more uh, sort of an external going through the motions. 
And God doesn't want that with any of us. With any of us. And the truth is, as our culture continues to drift further and further away from, for want of a better word, Christian values, becoming followers of Jesus is increasingly becoming uncomfortable and inconvenient. You know, even this week, headlines were showing uh, actually how the law is, is coming, kind of coming at odds increasingly with Scripture when it comes to things of human dignity and human rights. It's interesting how that is increasingly, even now in the law courts, there's, there's, a, there's a clash there. It's the way it's drifting. And yet, and yet, Hebrews is full of hope and full of faith and full of joy. And, and you know what? I, I believe this is timely for us because not only does it encourage us to examine our own hearts and say, actually, where am I really putting my trust? Where, where does my hope really lie? Am I building my life on the unchanging, unshakable truths of God? Or am I actually starting to drift and, and starting to invest more in the temporal things of this world? The things that actually are being shaken even now. And as we'll see through this series, God shakes things up to shake us out of the comfortable and convenient. He shakes us up to, to be people who live by faith and not by sight. To look with eyes of faith and say, actually, God is able to provide for all my needs. Financial, health, job. Wonderful testimony. I love that. Providing a job. I, God is so gracious, isn't he? He is so gracious. And so we need to listen again, I think, to this message in Hebrews. Not to allow uh, the prevailing culture headlines to, 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 to kind of intimidate us, to cause us to go off the boil, to dial it down a bit. Yet here there is a call to see the glorious opportunities that God actually gives us in this time, gives to his church, to actually stand up and say, we have faith in the one who is never shaken. We don't have to shrink back. But we can be those who, by faith, take hold of the, the promises of God and actually grow in faith and see his kingdom advance. Amen? So, so really, that's my prayer, that actually, this, rather than just, oh, this is an interesting kind of study on Hebrews, I really, my prayer is that faith will be imparted. Even now, Lord, will you just impart faith into our hearts by your Spirit? Believe you've already been starting to do that in our worship. Continue to let faith grow. Let faith grow. Help us to spur each other on, to encourage one another. And this call to be disciples that actually transform the culture around them. Amen, amen. Okay, took a little bit longer on that one, but let's turn to Hebrews. If you've got your phones, got your Bible, we're going to start at the very beginning Chapter 1, verse 1, Hebrews is uh, just after Timothy, Titus, Philemon, you get to Hebrews. And, and can, while you're flicking there, can I just encourage you, read through Hebrews during the week. 
Really immerse yourself in the message. Really engage with what, it's, what the writer is getting at as we go through this series. Just going to start with the first three verses. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. I love that. The Son cannot be separated from the Father. You know, just as the Son's rays are fully connected to the Son itself, you can't separate them. The Son is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Just pause there. Firstly, you will notice for a letter, there is no, hi, how are you doing? In fact, it's not really much of a letter form to begin with. It ends more like a letter. But he's just straight in with Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, straight in there. No apology, no introduction. Can I just suggest, when we are in the middle of a storm, when we are confused, when we are saying, God, which way can I turn? Guess where the first port of call is? Jesus, the Son of God, supreme over all things. Yes? Start there. It's a great place to start. And in these three verses, we see what is sometimes referred to as the threefold ministry of Jesus, that he is the prophet, priest, and king. And so if we just break that down very quickly, firstly, Jesus is God's final and full prophet. He fully and completely revealed God to us. God's character, God's very nature. God is a God who loves to communicate. When we looked at Jesus in the Old Testament, we saw that time and time again. And notice it's always God who initiates. He is the one who starts the conversation. With the Old Testament, he he worked out ways of being able to communicate with his people through the tabernacle and sacrificial system so there could be a relationship. Because he loved to communicate with his people. He would choose prophets, anoint them with oil, and, and be the voice of God to the people. But as we saw, that was all just a shadow, a foreshadow, a foretaste of what was to come. And that was Jesus, God's perfect and most glorious message to us, revealing fully the very nature of God. That's why we're in the last days, because there's nothing more to come (laughs) as far as Jesus has done it all. Yes, Jesus will return, but we are in the last days because God has fully revealed himself in Jesus. Before Jesus, the former days. After Jesus, the last days. Nothing more needs to be revealed. It's all in Jesus, all in him. He is the exact representation of his being. The NIV uses that word uh, representation. In the Greek, it's where we get our word character from. You know, in printing, when you've got a character... And it stamps onto onto the paper. It's the perfect image, the exact expression, an imprint, the nature of God. That's why Jesus could say, whoever's seen me has seen the Father, because he is the exact representation. God's ultimate message to us 
was the sending of himself in the person of his son. As I said, in our confused world, that is our first port of call. Look to Jesus, recognize his divinity, his supremacy over all things. Recognize that he holds all things together. It's all in him. As we meditate on that, as we reflect on that, surely that gives anxiety a a kind of a proverbial kick in the teeth. He's in control. He's in control. But you know what? This message gets even better. Because he doesn't just reveal God to us. He also deals with the problem of our sin. Again, we've been singing about that. This is his priestly role. As many will know, in the Old Testament, the priests used to offer sacrifices after sacrifices after sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people, to make them acceptable before God. Particularly the Day of Atonement, they would choose a lamb without blemish, an acceptable sacrifice. And again, Jesus is declared as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 3 talks about God presenting Christ as the acceptable sacrifice through the shedding of his blood. He is the perfect high priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. Final, once and for all, never to be repeated. Totally fulfilling the law and the prophet's perfect, perfect sacrifice. Nothing more needs to be added, which is why the writer goes on to say he sat down. He sat down. This is his kingly role at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is sovereign. To the Jewish recipients of this letter, they would have understood the significance of sitting down. It meant very clearly job done. Death and sin and hell defeated. He has the victory. He is victorious. He is reigning and ruling on an eternal throne, defeated through the cross and the resurrection. Guys, this is the basis. This is the lens, if you like, that we have to view all our circumstances through the lens of the victory of Jesus Christ. Are you being stirred at all? (laughs) I hope you are. Whatever is going on in your life and in this world and in this nation, Jesus has the final word. Amen? You know, I just love that challenge as we were just in the worship, as we were just bringing to God circumstances, challenges, storms of life. Why don't we just do that again right now? Just bring to mind those challenges that you are facing right now. Those difficult situations. It might be difficulties in finance. It might be difficulties in health. It might be difficulties with loved ones or job issues or whatever it is. Have you got them? Now, why don't you declare in the Spirit, Jesus, you have the final word. Can we just say that out loud together? Jesus, you have the final word over all these different situations. We thank you, God, that you are sovereign and you are at work. We believe it. Amen. And so particularly for these Jewish believers, as they were tempted to fall back, dial it down, kind of hide their light under a bushel, if you like, the message is clear. Why on earth would you do that? 
Why on earth would you fall away? Why would you fall back to something that was only meant to be temporal when something far better has now come? Why would you do that? And so he goes on to quote loads of verses from the Old Testament, verses they would have known off by heart. He quotes from the Psalms and Chronicles and Samuel and and all sorts of other places over the next 10 verses, pointing to Jesus. He uses them prophetically. You know, a lot of people know Psalms were obviously worship, but also prophetic words. And so he uses these prophetically to point to how much greater Jesus is. That's a reoccurring theme throughout Hebrews, Jesus is better. And so he starts with saying Jesus is better than the angels. You think, well, that's why the angels? Because again, to his Jewish readers, angels were a big deal. In Jewish tradition, the law of Moses was handed from God by the angels. They were very significant in the Jewish tradition. I mean, you know, today they've kind of lost their significance a little bit, aren't they? kind of resigned to being sung about by Robbie Williams. I'm loving angels instead. Or or dodgy chat-up lines. What's that one? Um, Hey, heaven must have... It must be missing an angel. I've never used that one, by the way. (laughs) You know what? Angels, Angels are awesome beings. Awesome, awesome beings. But they are created beings. They're created beings like us, not like Jesus, not like Jesus. And so he writes in verse 4, So he, that's Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Okay, so just pause there. Firstly, no one else has the title, the Son of God. Yes, in one sense, angels are referred to as sons of God. In fact, we're referred to as children of God. But the official title, the Son of God, is reserved for Jesus and him alone. And he has been given the name, says here, that is superior. We know from Scripture, he has the name that is above every other name. That At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Just pause for a moment and just think what a privilege it is for us to be able to pray in that name. You know, we often so, so flippantly pray in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Just think for a moment what that means. The name that is above every other name. The one who is enthroned on high, who is sustaining all things by his powerful word, we then speak prayers in his name, with his authority. That is just mind-blowing, isn't it? We get the privilege to speak his will and his power into the brokenness and and confusion around us. I think that's really exciting. Verse 6, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he said, let all of God's angels worship him. Speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Again, just a little note here, firstborn does not indicate actual birth. We know Jesus was begotten, not created. 
He was there at the very foundation of the world. Colossians 1.15 adds that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation because he created all things. All things. But firstborn, and again the Jewish recipients of this letter would have understood, was more about a title of honor, a title of responsibility, a title of inheritance. In fact, characters in the Old Testament, people like Solomon, were not biologically firstborn, but they were called firstborn because they were the ones who inherited the promises. So it's more of a title like Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from amongst the dead because he was the first one to be raised from the dead. Okay? It all starts in Jesus. Did you just notice, though, in that, in that passage, God the Father just called Jesus God? You notice that? Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. That's why he commands that all of God's angels worship him. You cannot get away from Jesus' divinity. You cannot. If you read through Scripture, Jesus is God, God the Son. He goes on in verse 10. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's quite humbling. That's us, isn't it? (laughs) These powerful, almighty ministering angels are sent to serve those who inherit salvation. But he leaves no room for any other conclusion. That Jesus is the eternal creator. He's the sustainer of all things. He is the one who reigns supreme. He is the son of God and he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our everything. Everything. We cannot settle for anything less, church. We can't. Some of you will know that I used to work in uh, recording studios and as a record producer for like some 20 years and I am that old that I remember when hard disk recording first came into the studio. Up until that point, we had recorded on tape. And I used razor blades and a chinograph marker, and that is how I edited beats and and changed arrangements and chopped a few bars here and there out of songs. Old school, it worked. And then this newfangled technology came on. I remember having an argument with my assistant who was trying to persuade me to move to this new system. And I was really reluctant. I was like, "Mm, don't really trust it. Don't like it. It's different. The truth is, it was still, it was a far, far better way to create music and to record music, really, And yet, I would still go back with sweaty hands, shaky hands, usually about three o'clock in the morning, editing weeks of work, one slip of the razor blade in the wrong place. You've weakened the tape, you're in trouble. Remember working with artists, one artist in particular, who I knew had a very nervous disposition and was very paranoid about their work. 
and they were leaning over me, watching as I was cutting and splicing this tape. It was not a nice experience. And yet, with hard disk recording, you could try out edits, you could move stuff about, you could mess around, be creative with arrangements, and you had that wonderful undo button. You could just undo it and all go back to the beginning. Non-destructive editing. It was the future. And yet, there were so many of my peers who struggled with the concept of the new. It was a new world beyond, actually, a lot of people's imagination at the time. But the truth was, and sadly it was very true for some of my peers, if you didn't embrace this new technology, you wouldn't be working in the industry for much longer. Because more and more clients demanded, this is the way we work, this is what we want to use. Now, I am not equating hard disk recording to the gospel. There are many, many flaws in hard disk recording. For a start, it sounded horrible, and I still prefer to sound a tape. This is where analogies fall down. What I am saying is there was no real future in sticking with the old. The new and better way made the old way obsolete. And that's really what Hebrews is saying. Don't settle for anything less than what Jesus offers. In him, we have something far better, something that people didn't even know they needed and still don't know they need, and yet something that actually we cannot live without. Again, it begs the question, in what ways have we settled for anything less than building our lives on Jesus, the eternal Son of God. You know, for most of us, the temptation is not to fall back into Judaism, but actually to fall back into old ways of living, old habits. You know, we, we can end up living a sort of a hybrid life, thinking actually I'm getting the best of both worlds. But sadly, the truth is missing out completely on the fullness that Christ offers. That's, that's, that's the danger. You know, convenience and compromise, we've used these words before. They're ugly words when it comes to matters of faith. Ugly words. And the eagle-eyed among you will have spotted that I left out one verse. And you're all jumping to say, you didn't read out verse 9. You're right, I didn't read out verse 9. Because I just want us to finish on what verse 9 says. Again, the writer is quoting prophetically about Jesus, this time using Psalm 45. He says this, You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The oil of joy. Whatever is going on in the world... Whatever is going on in this nation, whatever is going on in your life, as followers of Jesus, we too are called to love, love righteousness, and to hate wickedness. We don't talk a lot about hating things, do we? God hates wickedness. We too are called to hate wickedness. We are called to be, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, to be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be those that give a voice 
to the vulnerable, to be those who stand up against injustice, to say, actually, this is not okay. I love that verse in Amos 5.24. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Do you know what? It's a well-known verse, that, but it's smack bang in the middle of God having a right go at his people. And what he's complaining about is their empty faith. This hollow religion, going through rituals, just going through the motions. Sandwiched between that is this, let, this call, let righteousness roll like a river, or justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You know, we're called River Church, aren't we? And I think one of the key, key things, emphasis that God has for us in Sutton is to be a voice of righteousness, a church that stands up for injustice, people who actually reach out to the vulnerable and the needy. I love the fact we're playing a key part with the homeless shelter. There is so much more for us to do. But here's the crunch, really. Loving righteousness and hating wickedness also means hating the wickedness in our own hearts. Not being prepared to be okay about sin in our lives. Compromising. Convenient. God hates it. And you know what? So should we. And, and the, the, the answer really is in this verse. And it's about being anointed with the Holy Spirit. Be open to God to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to help us to change from the inside out, to love righteousness as he loves righteousness, to hate wickedness as he hates wickedness. It's not something that we do in ourselves. It's only, only through his Holy Spirit transforming us inside. And you know what? As we do that, we get to experience real joy. As we stand up in the storm, as we refuse to back down, as we refuse to grow dull, as we refuse to cave into the prevailing culture, as we refuse to get beaten down by our circumstances, it is not in our own strength. It is in the power of the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Lord be your strength. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And we can experience joy even in the storms. Even in the storms. Towards the end, the writer to Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. Even facing our greatest battles, we can know joy. It's a challenge, isn't it? Maybe in your small groups you can discuss this further. But in what way are we demonstrating that we love righteousness? And in what ways are we demonstrating that we are hating wickedness? This isn't theory. This is practical. This is life, isn't it? And in what ways can we experience his joy more and more? Jesus is the true prophet who perfectly reveals God to us. He is the true priest who perfectly sacrificed himself for our sins. And he is the true king, ruling and reigning with perfect justice. And you know what? He is the author 
and perfecter of our faith. And he is the only one in whom we can trust and build our lives on. I think the only real response is for us to worship. So why don't we just give ourselves to worship? And listen, if there are areas that you want personal prayer for, don't hold back. Feel free to come up during the worship. Feel free to tap someone on the shoulder and just say, can you pray for me? You know, as, as has already been brought up, we, we are all facing storms of life. And God wants us to be a people who don't shrink back, but actually see the opportunities he's given us for our faith to grow. Amen. Let's worship him. Mm-hmm.